What if? Abundant Life, it's great to see you. I'm so glad you're here. All of you at Blue Springs as well, thankful you're there. All of you watching online, I'm so thankful that you are here to gather as the body of Christ once again. Now, the downside to actually gathering once again on site after two months is for the first time in two months, I had to set an alarm on Sunday morning. <laughs> Let me ask you, have you ever overslept for anything? Yeah, that, that panicky feeling when you wake up and realize you've overslept, which is why you set an alarm, right? Uh, I have overslept for a, a few things in my life. One of the worst things I've ever overslept for happened in 1992. I was a brand new rookie cop, member of the KCPD. I'd gotten off break-in. I'm now patrolling alone. I'm working midnight to eight. And about three o'clock in the morning every night, the radio would kind of die off, the calls would die off, things would kind of slow down, and by routine, you'd kind of about three o'clock in the morning, you'd find a dark, kind of secluded parking lot somewhere, and you'd start doing your reports. And on this particular night, I was really tired, I'm really exhausted. So I said, well, before I do my reports, I'm just gonna lean my seat back and just rest my eyes for a minute. Just a minute. And in, in, in my sleep, I didn't realize I was sleeping, but I started dreaming, and I'm dreaming that the dispatcher was calling my radio number. My radio number is 135. And I'm dreaming that the dispatcher is calling 135, 135, calling radio 135. I'm dreaming this, calling radio 135, answer 135. Now you need to know, if you're a member of the KCPD at the time, if you miss your radio call more than three times in a row, it's big time trouble. I mean, you can get you know, written up, you get suspended, like if you miss your radio call and you don't answer, every cop in Kansas City starts looking for you because they think you might be in trouble, and this is the time before GPS, so it's a really big deal. So I'm lying there, and I'm dreaming the dispatcher is calling my radio number 135, and then all of a sudden, and I hear a, and it's my buddy who's knocking on my window trying to wake me up. He knew the parking lot of choice that I like to write my reports, and so he sped there. He found me banging on my window. Phil, wake up. The dispatcher's calling you. Oh, 135. Yes, I'm, uh, yeah, yeah, 135. Go ahead. Now I'm fully awake, as you can imagine, and I'm telling you the story this morning because I'm convinced that God has been calling our number, but we haven't listened. And the clock is ticking, can you hear it? Blue Springs, do you hear the clock? Sitting at home, do you hear the clock? The clock is ticking, and one day soon, the alarm is gonna ring one last time. And that is why I'm convinced it's time for the church to awaken because I had fallen asleep on duty. And I'm convinced the nation is where the nation is because the church is where the church is. The church has fallen asleep on duty. And that is why we are desperate for an awakening because God has been trying to awaken us generation after generation, but we have not listened. April 1999, for the first time in U.S. history, Two teenagers walk into their high school, Columbine High School, Littleton, Colorado, and they are bent on mass murder. And by the time they are done, 13 students are dead and 20 are injured. The alarm bell was ringing, but we did not listen. 
September 11, 2001, Islamic extremists fly airplanes in the Twin Towers, and 3,000 Americans that day lost their life. And everyone's saying, God bless America, but nothing ever changed. I want you to see over and over again, God has called our number, but we have not listened, and the clock is still a-ticking. 2008, the housing market crashes, the stock market crashes, recession. Once again, God is saying, awaken, but we refuse to listen. And we continue to slumber. 2020, a pandemic grips the entire world. Worldwide panic and worldwide recession. The clock is once again ringing. The question is, will we finally listen? See, I'm convinced God is sovereign. That means this pandemic did not take him by surprise. I don't know if you realize this or not, but God is sovereign. That means he knows everything, and ultimately he's in control of everything. And I'm convinced when this pandemic changed our lives two months ago, he wasn't in the middle going, I don't know what I'm going to do. Gabriel, did you know this was going to happen? No, he knew this was going to happen. And he's using it as a warning, and he's using it as a wooing, because ultimately the clock is ticking. God has a prophetic clock. And it's ticking. The only question is, will we listen? And if you want to see what God is doing, all you have to do is see what God has done. The way you peer into the future is by peering into the past. If you want to see where God is going, just look where God has been. Joel chapter 1 gives us a lesson, I'm convinced, though written many years ago in ancient Israel by an ancient Hebrew prophet. It gives us wisdom and understanding of the present. Joel chapter 1, there is a famine in the land. God allowed a cat upon the nation because that nation needed to spiritually awaken. Joel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, look at what it says in verse 4. It says this, what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. What the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Awake, and you see that is what God is trying to do. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. Historically, listen carefully, God has brought cataclysm on nations when they needed to spiritually awaken. And what was going on in Joel's day, in some ways similar to our day, God has allowed a plague of locusts upon the land. Now, you need to know, in the ancient days, there were certain things that would strike fear in the heart of all the ancient people. One of those things was a plague of locusts. A plague of locusts would descend upon the land, and they would strip all the land of anything green. They would strip all the trees of all their leaves, and worst of all, they would eat all the crops, and when there was no crops, you could not feed your flocks, and famine would be the next thing to follow. Poverty, hungry, you could not feed your family, and that's what Joel was facing as a nation, and he's about to deliver a word from God to the people of God. It is time to awaken, and that very thing 
thing, incidentally, I don't think coincidentally, is happening right now all over East Africa. Has not been seen in generations, but at this very moment, there's a plague of locusts in Kenya and Uganda and all over East Africa. Imagine on a blue sky on a sunny day, watching the sky darkened with this mass of locusts. That is happening at this very hour, in this very moment. That is what was happening in Joel's day. And God had allowed this plague upon the land because he knew that famine would bring the people to desperation and only then would they fully awaken. And I would suggest to you, church, that what is true in Joel's day, it is true in our day. We must awaken because our nation is facing a new kind of famine. It is a moral famine. It is a spiritual famine. Since 1970, there's been a 560% increase in violent crime, a 200% increase in teenage suicide, rising STD rates among America's teens. One in four teenage girls has the HPV virus. We are statistically the most addicted generation in the history of our nation. Depression is at an all-time high in the history of our nation in this generation. 60% of all babies born are born out of wedlock in the United States. The breakdown of the family, the fabric of society over Over 40% of children will not be raised by their biological father. It's a moral famine in the land, a spiritual famine in the land. And that is why God, I'm convinced, has allowed this time of desperation, this divine interruption. Because he's saying it's time to awaken. Listen carefully, the clock, do you hear it? It's always ticking. There is a prophetic clock that even now is ticking. And one day soon, it's gonna ring one last time. And I'm convinced personally, when you look at this pandemic, it is a significant event and a series of significant events that is ultimately leading to the main event, which is indeed the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a late hour, it is the 11th hour, and God is saying, church, it's time to awaken. And that's what this series is about. It's time for an awakening. Now listen, God has done it before, and I'm convinced God wants to do it again. They talk in secular history, even by secular historians, about the first great awakening. Something happened sociologically that cannot be explained sociologically. Something indescribable but undeniable as thousands and thousands came to Christ all across this land. A supernatural move of God happened again in what they call the second great awakening. And once again, in the 1820s, 1830s as thousands and thousands and thousands turned to the true and living God all across this nation. 1857, 1858, they called it the businessman's revival because one man in New York City began a prayer meeting over the lunch hour. It started with six people, but by two years later, a million Americans had come to faith in Christ in a nation of only 30 million. They talk today about the Welsh revival of 1904, something indescribable happen. It was not promoted. It was not planned. But something happened when the presence of God invaded the presence of men and women. 
And what we need is another awakening all across this land. Now here, here's what's gonna happen over the next few weeks. So we're gonna be doing something in cooperation with Westside Family Church over in Lenexa. As you're hearing this message here, they're hearing this message over in Westside. And the next week, you're gonna hear from Randy Frazee, pastor of Westside. And then the week after that, you're gonna hear from Pastor Jim Simbla of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, of course, home to the famous Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. You know why? Because we have to end what amounts to something that is distinctly American when it comes to the church. I'm talking about the tribalism, the turfism, the turf protection, the competition. If awakening is going to come to the land, we've got to quit being concerned only about our church and start being concerned about the church. That means we got to overcome the egotism and the competition and overcome denominationalism and division and start working together for something that matters now more than ever. I'm talking about real revival. What happens in times of real revival is the Spirit of God comes and breathes new life on that which has died. You're going to hear two terms in this series, revival and awakening. They're actually two sides of the same coin. Revival happens to the body of Christ. What happens to a body when it has died and you put CPR and you know, boom, and all of a sudden it comes back to life? What happens to the body of Christ that has died, but the Spirit of God comes and breathes new life upon it? Now it's revived. You see, revival happens to the body of Christ. And the body of Christ may look good outwardly in American Christianity, but it is dying inwardly. We are desperate for a fresh move of the Spirit of God upon our life, a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit upon the body of Christ. Listen carefully. Awakening goes beyond the body of Christ. Awakening begins with the body in revival, but awakening changes cities. It changes communities. Awakening changes nations. And that's what has happened historically, and that is what God wants to do in the days of Joel upon that nation. And I'm convinced there's a lesson. God wants to do it again for our nation. Listen carefully. The church must awaken because as the church goes, so goes the nation. See, we are where we are as a nation because the church is where the church is. And as the church goes, so goes the nation. See, we all like to fuss about what goes on in the White House and what goes on in the public schoolhouse and what goes on at the courthouse. But God says, oh no, it all begins with what goes on in our house and what goes on in the church house. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. If our world is in darkness and the darkness has descended, whose fault would that be? We're the ones charged by Jesus to keep the lights on in society. He said in Matthew 5, that very same sermon, that very same passage, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, wherewith shall it be salted? It's good for nothing then but to be thrown on the ground and trodden underfoot by men. What was he saying when he says, you're the salt of the earth? Now listen, salt today is just a seasoning, but it was more in Jesus' day than merely a seasoning. I like salt. Uh, Some people say, well, you're either a salt person or a sugar person. I disagree, because I'm both. Like, you know, when I go to Mexican and you get the chips and salsa, I take salt, I admit it, I salt my chips, okay? And uh, I can eat my weight in chips and salsa, but then I'm not done. Because I can, you know, follow it up with fried Mexican ice cream. Yeah. 
Are those, what are those things that come, the cinnamon puffs with the little honey? Churros? Sopapillas, that's the word I'm looking for. Oh my goodness, melt in your mouth, come on. And the salt sets up the sugar. Would you guys agree? All right, come on, yeah. Here's what I want you to see. Salt in Jesus' day was for more than just salting your tostadas, all right? Salt was a very valuable commodity. You know why? Because these were the days before refrigeration. These were the days before you could freeze your food and use it later. If you wanted to keep meat from decay, you had to salt it down. That was the only way you kept anything from decay. Do you understand what Jesus meant when he called you and I the church, the salt of the earth? Listen, we live in a society in moral decay, in spiritual decay, and it's decayed in our day, and that is not okay. You know why the world is in decay? Because Christians aren't very salty. The church has lost its saltiness. Jesus said it's good for nothing but to be thrown on the ground and trodden underfoot by men. You see, we have so watered down modern Christianity and the message that we're no longer salty. I'm trying to tell you, if you want to do something for God, you got to be a little salty. You see, it's the salt that preserves society from decay. But what happens when salt is mixed with water? It loses its saltiness. You can't keep anything from decay from watered-down salt. And that's what's happened in modern Christianity. A.W. Tozier said the gospel has been so watered down in some churches that if it were medicine, it wouldn't cure anybody, and if it were poison, it wouldn't kill anybody. It's true. We have watered down Christianity, so it's no longer salty. We're not preserving society from decay because we have lost the salt. What is the salt? Listen, the salt is the truth of God's word. The salt is the truth of what God has said. That's the salt. And the reality is we've watered down the truth, so it's no longer very salty. And I want you to listen. Remember something. The clock is ticking. We better awaken because the clock's gonna start ringing. It's not gonna be ticking, and it's gonna start ringing, and it's gonna ring one last time. I am convinced God is giving us one last chance to return to him, to come back to him. I want you to see ultimately that it's time to get a little bit salty. Not only was salt a preservative in Jesus' day, but it had a medicinal purpose in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, if you had an open wound and you needed to cleanse it, There was no, what was that stuff that came in the brown bottle when we were kids? Peroxide, hydrogen peroxide, don't you hate that stuff? Yeah, horrible stuff. Guess what's worse? How about if you rub salt in the wound? That's what they did in Jesus' day. If you needed to cleanse a wound, you didn't have hydrogen peroxide and all this fancy stuff today. I mean, you put salt in the wound, and what happened is that salt would sting. Why does the truth of God's word make people so angry today? I'll tell you why, because the truth hurts. The truth stings. You see, God isn't trying to hurt us. He's trying to heal us. That's what the salt is for. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. He wants to set you free from anything that could infect your life, anything that could harm your life. He wants to set you free with the truth of God's word. But the problem is we're not living by the truth or standing by the truth. We have watered down the truth until no longer is it the truth of God's word. The salt of God's word is now just a watery solution 
that's left the world in a dingy gray. You see, we will live to see national revival or national ruin. That's why we must awaken. Church, we must awaken. We need to begin praying like they did in Joel's day for a spiritual awakening, a spiritual renewal, a spiritual revival beginning in our hearts, beginning in our homes, beginning in our church, and then the church, and then all across this land. And the beautiful promise is this, that prayer and repentance are the pathway to revival. See, God wants to bring revival to our lives individually, revival to our families individually, revival to our church corporately, revival to our country, and prayer and repentance is the pathway to revival, it's the pathway to awakening. This is what Joel is about to tell the people of God, and this is what Joel would say to this people of God. Look at what it says in Joel 2 and verse 12. He says, now therefore, he says, the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. If you want revival in your life, you want the spirit of God to move upon your life, it begins with turning to God with your whole heart, with all of your heart. You see, right here's part of the problem. We have given God part of our heart, but most of us here have not given God all of our heart. You see, the reality is most of us cannot say like the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ. What we would say if we were honest is that for me to live is Christ, but not only Christ. I mean, for me to live is my job, for me to live is my hobbies, for me to live is my vacation, for me to live is my promotion. We can't honestly say for me to live is Christ. You see, unfortunately, Christ has part of our life, but he does not get all of our life. We have a divided heart with divided affections. We give our heart to this, we give our heart to this, we give our heart to this. And I want you to see we've got too many lovers. That's the problem. Jesus wants to be the first love of your life. It's revelation. Revelation 2 and verse 5, you have left your first love. You see, we've got too many lovers. We are in love with the things of this world, and he's trying to redeem us from the love of this world. 1 John 2, 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world, and the world is passing away. Listen, it's passing away. It's passing away. With every tick, the world is passing away. And the lust thereof. But it says, they that do the will of God abideth forever. It is time to repent of all the other loves in our life and come back to our true love, our only love, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he says, turn to me with your whole heart, with all of your heart. How many of you that are married would want to share your wife's heart with another? Well, honey, you have part of my heart, but this man has part of my heart, and he has part of my heart. You would say, oh, no, baby, I want all of your heart. You see, Jesus is no different. He says, turn to him with all of your heart, with fasting. I don't find it coincidental at all that we have all had to fast from all the things that have filled our lives up in the last two months instead of him. Think about this. In this divine interruption, this divine intervention, this divine disruption, we have fasted from sports, haven't we? I mean, I like watching ESPN now more than ever. You know why? Because it is hilarious. 
I mean, watching these guys try to figure out what to talk about. I mean, 24-7 sports reporting. What do you do when there is no sports? Okay, let's talk about the 1976 NBA playoffs again. <laughs> yeah, we have, we have fasted from that God, that idol that has controlled so many of our lives for so long. Not going to many ball games these days, are we? Yeah, we have fasted from the movie theater and from the musical concerts, and we have fasted from our idols, the rock stars and the pop stars, haven't we? You know what I hate? I have a pet peeve. When I'm making my family dinner and I'm pulling out all the stops for a really nice dinner, and I have a small menu, but what I do, I do really well. Small menu, but I do really, really well a few things. I grill and I fry. If it goes on the grill or goes in the skillet, I got it. Like fish fry, oh yeah, that's, that's on my list of things I do. But one of the things I love to do, hey, I love to grill. So, you know, when I've got like T-bones on the grill, I've got salmon on the grill, I'm putting the Caesar salad together, and we're pulling out all the stuff. We got loaded baked potatoes, and we're 10 minutes from sitting down and eating this amazing dinner together. And then I see one of my kids pull out a bag of potato chips. What? What? No, put that down. You're going to fill up on junk food. You're not going to be hungry. I mean, the real thing is coming. You know what God is saying? Listen, it's time to put down the potato chips. We have filled up on the temporal trinkets and Twinkies of this world so that we are satisfied with just a crumb of God's presence in our life. And we come to church once a week for an hour and 15 minutes and we get a little crumb of God's presence, but we are satisfied with just a little. You know why? Because we don't come hungry. We're not hungry spiritually because we are so filled up on the things of the world. We have no room left for God. It's time to start fasting from the things that don't last and the things that don't matter and ask God, make me hungry. Make me hunger again for the things that matter. Make me hunger, God, for you, more of you. God, give me a desire to pursue you. This is not a normal hunger. It's not a natural hunger. This is something God does in you. It is time to fast from Facebook. Because some of us spend more time in Facebook than we do the book. He says, turn to me with fasting, with weeping and mourning. That means repentance. Begin praying, God grant me repentance. I, I can't do this for myself. Do you understand? Everything is a gift of God. Everything is by the grace of God. God grant me repentance. So I'm not just sorry for my sin, but that I'm genuinely repentant of my sin. I'm gonna say this more than once in this series. Some of our marriages are barely hanging on and nothing like being quarantined to expose the dysfunction in our families. Listen carefully. Two hours spent in God's presence would do more to heal your marriage than two years of counseling. I, I promise you, I absolutely promise you, 
your marriage is barely hanging on, you're thinking about divorce, don't know how much longer we can hang on, I will promise you a thousand times, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, if the two of you would get on your knees and get on your face before God, I know you hate each other right now, you don't even want to talk to each other, much less pray together, but if you would get on your knees together and begin saying, God, we will not get up until you have come and healed our marriage. God, we will not give up until you have come and invaded our presence. The Spirit of God would pour himself out upon you and your hearts would break for God and it would break for each other and you would find forgiveness for each other. You'd find overcoming that bitterness against each other. I'm trying to tell you, that's what happens in times of revival. That's what we need all across this land, beginning with here, right here, my heart, your heart. But the clock is ticking. Will you listen? Will you let the Spirit of God bring an awakening? He says this, so rend your heart and not your garments. In the ancient days, they would rend their garments. That word rend means tear. They would tear their clothing outwardly as a sign of the repentance inwardly. You see what God is saying? Hey, guys, quit going through the motions. I am not impressed if you just tear your heart, your garments. I want you to tear your hearts. See, we can go through the motions outwardly, but God is looking at our heart's condition inwardly. And we go through the motions. We've been going through the motions. We've gone through the motions for far too long. I don't know if you paid attention to the news this last week, but we paid dearly for our right to gather this Sunday morning. Now, we didn't pay anything financially, but we paid dearly. It was costly. But watch this. The latest science says the average churchgoer in America only engages in church 1.8 times a month anyway. Now, if you're watching online, you're here. You don't have to be on site to be here any longer. We're starting online congregation. I'm telling you, the latest science is Christians in America engage in church on-site or online only 1.8 times a month. You know why? Because we have taken the day, Sunday, that the Apostle Paul called the Lord's Day, and we have now made it our day. This is my day. And when it's convenient, I'll give Jesus a day. I mean, it's still, so okay, I'll give about 1.8 times a month. I'll go to the motions, and if it's convenient, I'm not doing anything else. Paid a high price to be here today. But God is looking inwardly, not just what we do outwardly. I still hear people today bemoan the 1964 Supreme Court ruling. Well, you know, the worst thing that happened in our country is when it all started going to hell in a handbasket is when the Supreme Court took prayer out of school. Let me ask you, how much prayer goes on in your home? Don't rend your garment outwardly. He says, rend your heart. Let your heart break for what breaks the heart of God. 
Well, you know, like at ACLU, and they started taking the Ten Commandments down from all of our public monuments. Uh, let me ask you this. Are you living by the Ten Commandments anyway? See, God says, don't, don't rend your garments outwardly. It's about a heart condition inwardly. Let your heart begin to break for what breaks the heart of God. When God looks at the condition of our nation, the moral famine, the spiritual famine, the heart of God breaks, and it does not begin with change out there. Change has to begin with me. It's got to begin in here. And there's some things that God has revealed to me lately. I'm just telling you, this divine interruption of our lives has caused me much to divine introspection. God wants to reveal the idols in all of our lives, and guess what? We all got idols. The first one of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods but me, before me. Guess what? Anything you put in your life in the place of God becomes an idol, and it doesn't have to be sinful things. We think of idols being, well, pornography, methamphetamine. No, wait a minute. Idols can be good things that replace God as the main thing. Here's something God revealed to me without knowing it. It happens unwittingly. Revelation 2.5, I left my first love. I don't know when, but I did. I realize I have loved the bride more than I have loved the bridegroom. I've loved the church more than I've loved him. I have loved the people of God more than I've loved God. And somewhere along the way, I, 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 I moved away from where I, about 20 years ago, I remember where I was spiritually when I surrendered finally to the ministry. It took me two years as God began calling me to ministry to finally surrender. You know why? Because I knew I couldn't honestly say, God, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. I'll do anything you want me to do. I knew I couldn't honestly say that. I, I had given him part of my heart, but not all of my heart. I mean, I, I wanted to still control a little part of my life, if not all of my life. Like, God, I'm not sure that I would go anywhere and do anything. I, I don't know if you called me to the Sahara Desert, God. I just don't know if I would go there. So I finally got to the place, so I did, where, where God broke my heart finally he rended my heart and I said God I will do anything I will forsake anything I will follow you anywhere had no idea it was going to be here somewhere along the way something happened I didn't realize it I still sit it outwardly but God knew my heart inwardly somewhere along the way I started planning the rest of my life and my plan was this I, I love this church it's the only place I've ever wanted to be only church I've ever wanted to pastor I mean, I was there when this church was born. It became my baby, but the baby became a place of idolatry, meaning I don't want to go anywhere else. If God called me, I wouldn't go anywhere else. See, I would never have said that, but God revealed that. Now, God's not calling me anywhere else. Don't misunderstand. I have no intention. I sense no calling of God to go do anything else. But here's the point. Up until now, God couldn't have called me because I wasn't listening. I'd plan the rest of my life out like I was going to be the pastor at Abundant Life for the next 10, 12, 13 years, and then I was going to ride off into the sunset and enjoy a happy little quiet life on the farm. That was the plan. God came and invaded my presence 
and revealed my idolatry, and I can say I'm back where I was 20 years ago where I can honestly say I will forsake anything to follow him. Jesus, I will forsake anything. I will go anywhere. There's no cost too high. I will do anything you want me to do. Jesus, do it again. Rend your heart. Let God break your heart. My heart gets so cold, so callous, so hard, so quick. It wanders away so fast. Do you understand that every single day we come back and say, God, do it again? That's what he means to say, to rend your heart, to let God break your heart. I just put my garden in yesterday. Have you ever tried to put a garden and till up ground that's never been broken? It's really, really hard. I mean, you've got the tiller and it's beating you up to death and that, that ground doesn't want to be broken. But before it can be fruitful, it's got to be tilled, it's got to be broken, and that's what God wants to do in times of revival. It's not something you can work up for yourself. You can't get there by yourself. It's by the grace of God as you pray and repent and say, God, invade my presence, that he begins turning up your heart, tilling up your heart once again. Return to the Lord your God. And that is what this pandemic is about. It's about God shaking us and awaking us because the the clock is still ticking, and it's not too late, but the clock is winding down, and one day it's going to ring one last time. He's saying, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious. Aren't you glad that our God is a God of grace? He's gracious. He is merciful. He is slow to anger and a great kindness, and he relents from doing hard, harm. You see, he is a God that is holy, and that means he must bring down the gavel of penalty because he is holy, and one day soon, the clock is gonna wind down, it's gonna tick one last time, and it's going to indeed ring, and it will be too late, and the age of grace will be over. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that anyone who calls on his name can be saved. And if we repent and return, God promises to revive us and awaken us. Watch this, Joel sees now and in times revival. And I'm convinced more than ever, we are living at the end of the end times. I don't know how long till Jesus, I don't know. I know, Jesus gave us signs and he gave us certain things to look for. And all I can tell you is the platform is being positioned and this pandemic is a significant event and a series of significant events that is setting the stage for the main event, the second coming of Christ. And Joel sees an end times revival right before Christ returns. And he promises revival, worldwide revival. Look at what he says here in Joel 2.28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit. He says, look, there's going to be an age and a moment that I pour my spirit out upon all flesh, all men and women and all nations. And we are living in a time we're seeing this prophecy already being fulfilled. We have global partners that are embedded in Muslim areas, and these are people who are theologically sounded and grounded. I mean, they're not crazy, and I'm trying to tell you, they're eyewitnesses of this very thing happening, where Muslims are coming to faith in Jesus as the Messiah, and it's happening like this, through dreams and visions. The church in Iran is a million strong and growing every day. It's happening. 
It's amazing, we are living in prophetic times. But the clock is ticking. And he goes on, he says this, and it shall come to pass that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Listen, in the days immediately preceding Christ's second coming, there's worldwide revival. Revelation 7 tells us it begins with 144,000 Jews and it extends then to every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. People ask, well, can we theologically pray for revival in this age of apostasy? And we do indeed live. In 2 Thessalonians 2, one of the prophecies Paul told us to look for at the end times would be the church that turns away from the truth and we are living to see the great falling away. But what we know is that even in times of apostasy where the church itself is turning from the truth, there's a time of revival where people will be turning to the truth. And yes, while many will fall away, do you understand? In every generation, God preserves for him a remnant. And I'm telling you today, the remnant is rising. The remnant is awakening. And we need to pray for this end times awakening. And I'm telling you today, God will bring revival and pour out his spirit on anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Anyone here at Blue Springs, in your home, where you sit in your living room, on your back deck, in your car, wherever you are, today is the day. If you call on the name of Jesus, you will be saved from sin's penalty. 2,000 years ago, the sinless son of God came in the likeness of the sons of men so that the sons of men could be forgiven of their sin and become like him. He died for our sin. He was crucified, but three days later, he rose from the dead, and he is today alive. He's alive, and he lives not to condemn you, but to redeem you. Today is the day of salvation for all that call upon his name. And I'm telling you today, like my dispatcher, in 1992, she was calling my number, but I wasn't listening. Today, God is calling your number. He's been calling your number. The only question is, will you listen? Will you fully awaken? Because the clock is ticking. It's a late hour. It's about 11.59 and counting. And one day soon, it is gonna ring, and it's gonna ring one last time. awaking from sleep or recognition, coming into awareness of something, revival, restoration to consciousness, vigor, or strength, awakening, revival. Northampton, Massachusetts, 1730s, George Whitfield speaks to thousands of people in open air about the subject of spiritual rebirth, while Jonathan Edwards warns of the fearful position occupied by sinners in the hands of an angry God. Revival swept the colonies and countless thousands of lives began to change and churches began to change. History remembers this 
as the Great Awakening. New York, 1857. The United States was in the midst of a spiritual, political, and economic state of decline. Burdened about the spiritual apathy around him, layman Jeremy Lanfear rented a large hall and sent public invitations for a time of prayer. Six people responded, just six. But those six people earnestly began to pray and soon their number began to grow. And over the next two years, more than one million Americans, 3% of the American population, made a public profession of salvation. Lahore, Wales, 1904. A coal miner named Evan Roberts stands before a Monday night prayer meeting and challenges the group of just 17 people to number one, confess all known sin. Number two, seek repentance and restoration. Number three, surrender to the Holy Spirit. And number four, publicly confess Christ. The revival embers that sparked that evening so thoroughly blazed across the entire country of Wales, the editor of the Paul Mull Gazette in London reported the miners' mules had to be retrained to do their work, quote, without the incentive of profanity. So what is the link? What is the common denominator of these monumental movements of the Holy Spirit of God? How do things like this happen? It's prayer. The first step is always prayer. Every great movement of God begins when His people pray. Extraordinary, unified, passionate prayer. It is time to pray. It is time to pray for renewal. It is time to pray for revival. It is time to pray for an awakening. Second Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, I will heal their land. For the next two weeks, Monday through Friday, I'm going to ask you to set your alarm for 7.14 a.m. In the spirit of Second Chronicles 7.14, I'm going to jump on Facebook Live. Ten different revival prayers, ten different things to pray for. I'm going to have a short morning devotion. Lead you in a short time of prayer. As we seek God's face together. Two weeks from today is the day of Pentecost. Peter quoted from this very passage in Joel 2 on the day of Pentecost teaching as a partial fulfillment 2,000 years ago as the church was born, pointing to a future and final fulfillment one day with this worldwide revival. Why not pray on the day of Pentecost, two weeks from today, there's a rebirth of the church. If you can and you, you're able and willing, would you get on your knees with me? Over in Blue Springs, would you join us? in your homes, wherever you're watching. If you can't physically, God knows your, your heart inwardly. It's time to humble ourselves before the living God. We're Americans, we'll get through this. No, we won't. Our hope is not in American ingenuity. We got this, KC. No, we don't. KC, we don't got this. If God doesn't, we don't. 
God, we humble ourselves before you, confessing that we are really desperate for you. We're desperate for an awakening. Spiritually, a move of God upon this land. Asking you to blow on those still burning embers of your body. That the wind of the Holy Spirit would blow upon those coals. They're going cold. That breathe upon us the breath of life, revive us again. The Holy Spirit, heaven sent, revival as you breathe upon the body of Christ that is desperate for new life. As you breathe the breath of life upon the embers, we pray that you would bring about a revival fire in our life. Take a moment right now and just confess any sin to him that you know of in your life. Take a moment right now, confess any idols. Jesus, we repent. Would you rend our hearts? And bring an awakening again, as you have in the days of old, in Jesus' name, amen.